Um, I ran into uh, a guy this, this week and he was like, hey, you're, you're that, that pastor dude at Mosaic, right? And I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm one of, I'm one of them. And, and he was like, so let me get this straight. Um, Jesus' body is the bread. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And he's like, and Jesus rose again. And I was like, yeah, you got it. And he's like, because of the yeast? <laughs> so I, I've, been, I've been hanging on to that one all month long. So some of you have heard it two or three times. And uh, so very excited to celebrate the, the resurrection. He is risen. There we go. And we've had a great Easter weekend with our friends at Trinity Canton uh, uh, Anglican Fellowship. Um, Justin Kastner and his family are part of our church, and he leads the Anglican Fellowship here in Manhattan, Kansas, Trinity Canton. So if you were part of that Good Friday gathering, just raise your hand. We met in here. We had an art gallery. We reflected on the life and death of Christ and then had some uh, reflections from those who chose the art. It was, it was awesome. I really appreciated Justin's creativity with that. Who was there Holy Saturday at Danforth last night, Danforth Chapel on, on uh, campus. Ron uh, shared with us about uh, the, the crucifixion and the impact of that. It was awesome. Love working together with other churches and, and love being a mosaic altogether. So today is the culmination of Easter weekend, of Holy Week, of Lent, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, physical resurrection back from the dead. But we are wrapping up our uh, temptation series. If we got this, we have our, there we are. So the wilderness trials of Jesus. This is the third and final week. And uh, we're talking about the temptation to take shortcuts, kind of piggybacking off of Sarah's sermon from last week. So we're in Matthew chapter 4. And don't worry, we're, we're here early in the ministry of Jesus. That's where we'll start. But this teaching will end with the resurrection and looking forward to future resurrection. So that's where we're headed. So in John 4 verse 1, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So important to take note here, God's doing the testing, right? The Spirit of God led Jesus to the wilderness. God does not tempt, but he does test his children as he's doing here. So uh, Jesus was led by the same Spirit of God that you and I are invited to be led by in our daily lives as well. He was fully God, fully human. He, He emptied himself of much of his divine attributes to walk and experience life as a human being, which is it's hard for us to, to uh, wrap our hearts and minds around that. So God's doing the testing. The devil's doing the tempting. Um, anyone seen Creed three yet? Man, that series is resurrected, right, from the dead. I mean, Rocky all the way. It is good. And here's a spoiler to Creed three. There's an epic battle, right? Several rounds. People are knocked down. You think they're down for the count. You think they've died. And then they're resurrected and there's, a, there's someone who wins, right? I saw some people closing their ears, but you, you, know, you know it's got to be that. It's boxing, right? And so here we have Jesus in the middle of a boxing match uh, with the devil. Three rounds. We've already tackled round one. Round two, here's round three, but it doesn't end here 
doesn't end here. There's several rounds to come before the knockout. So here's, here's the devil and his, his punch. So this is the third, third round. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Uh, this kind of reminds me of, of Aladdin when he you know, rubs a genie lamp and the, and the genie's like, I can do all of this for you. It's sort of a vision of the power of the, the, the genie and what he could provide to Aladdin. And uh, the devil says, all of this I will give to you, Jesus. 30-some, early 30s man who's very poor, uh, grew up in Nazareth, a backwoods country spot, um, he says, I will give all of this to you if you will bow down and worship me. So first of all, just quickly, were these kingdoms of the world the devils to give? Like, could, could he even offer this? Jesus didn't contest his claim, right? Jesus didn't say, hey, dude, those are my father's kingdoms, right? Like, you can't even give them to me. No, Jesus, uh, actually in Luke, it says that uh, the devil says, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you'll worship me, it will be yours. And actually we learn in the New Testament in 1 John five nineteen, it says, the whole world is under the, the control of the evil one. And we see this picture that, that uh, after the fall of Satan and his angels and humanity, now he is the prince of the earth and ruling over the earth. And Jesus is showing up, uh, threatening that reign. And we learn as you read scripture, um, just quick background, the, the devil actually hates humanity. Um, not 100% sure why, but uh, some of the thoughts around that is, you know, we were the ones made in the image of God. So that God has created the, the whole earth, the universe, the heavens, all the angelic beings and humanity, and he makes us in his image, and he placed us on earth and said, you are my, reg my vice regents. You are the ones who are to reign and rule over the earth. And I think that, that upset the devil. I think that's, that's why he hates humanity, and he had it out for us, and he deceived Eve in that great wilderness testing, and she failed, Adam failed, and now he is actually reigning over this fallen and broken world. And in Ezekiel 28, if you want to take a deep dive into the nature of, of Satan or the devil, uh, check out Ezekiel 28. We learn there that he is influencing earthly world leaders. So when we th see all the terrible things that happen, politics around the globe, there's more going on than meets the eye. These just aren't wicked people. There's actually spiritual powers of evil behind that. In Ezekiel 28, we learned that the devil was said to be full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, and in Eden, the garden of God. He was blameless in his ways from when he was created until wickedness was found in him. Somehow from within himself, there was a rebellious posture towards God, probably, possibly over his hatred over, uh, of, of humanity. And then God threw him to the earth and then uh, fire came out from within the devil and consumed him. So we learn a few things here is that typically rebellion against God is more actually self-destructive 
then it even requires God to do the destroying, if you will. And that's the nature of sin that we experience as well. We kind of reap what we sow. So there's a self-destructive tendency to rebellion against God, against the Father. So yes, the, the uh, kingdoms of the world were the devils to offer Jesus in this moment. Again, put yourself in Jesus' shoes if you can. Grew up a poor carpenter from Nazareth. As we learned, I think maybe Josh had shared, um, or we learned at uh, Holy Saturday last night, Jesus didn't know all the next steps. He had a sense of what was to come, but he didn't know. He was led by the Spirit. So he knew something about the suffering that was to come. And he knew that his life would be snuffed out on a cross at some point. So he had that looking ahead. And here's the devil saying, hey, you can have it all now. That's the end game, right? To rule and reign over all these earthly kingdoms. So here is the temptation to take a shortcut. And in our culture, that's very alluring. We are a culture of instant gratification. We really struggle with delayed gratification, working towards something that's better than what I could have right now. So maybe something to consider. Where, you know, where is your temptation to take a shortcut uh, even now? There's shortcuts to be taken relationally uh, where you don't want to do the hard work and you just move on to the next relationship that makes you feel good. There's shortcuts to take in work, in politics, in the gym. I mean, we, we all understand the pull, the temptation to the shortcut rather than the work, the suffering it takes for something better in the future. As I was preparing, I, I couldn't help but think about one of our favorite wildcats on the basketball team, right? The, the men's basketball team, Keontae Johnson. And you know his story. 2020, he collapsed, heart condition, um, and it was held in front of him a $5 million insurance policy. You can have $5 million right now. Don't have to work ever again. Just invest that. And just don't ever play basketball. Don't live up to your full potential and calling. And what did Keontae Johnson do? Bless his heart. He resisted that instant gratification for something greater that we're witnessing now. Right? Now, Keontae Johnson, he's no Jesus Christ. So if someone sends this to him, like, no, I mean, he's a flawed dude. We all get that. But man, the, the, uh, the self-control to, to delay that gratification when it's hung right in front of you. So what will Jesus do? Here's his block in this battle, this, this um, boxing match and counterpunch. He says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And all these quotes in all three rounds come from Deuteronomy. This is quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. So Jesus chose to trust the Father, to trust his trainer, if you will, in the, in the boxing metaphor, to trust him rather than give in in that moment and take the shortcut to get what he wanted and what he rightfully deserved, actually. So Jesus here is the obedient son. 
Um, in John 14, verse 30, it says, and Jesus is, is speaking, he says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So this was very important because time and time again, humanity has failed in the face of these temptations and battles. Uh, Adam and Eve initially, uh, Enoch, or sorry, yeah, just step and step again. Moses failed the battle. Israel failed the battle. But here comes Jesus so that we can learn he loves the Father, does exactly what the Father uh, commands. In John 12, he says, Now is the time for judgment in this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The picture is Jesus being lifted high as a victorious king, but yet he was speaking about the kind of death he would die. And we learn in Hebrews 5, 8, it says, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So it wasn't enough that Jesus was born as the Son of God. He actually had to demonstrate and prove his sonship, that he was in step with the Father's will. There's this uh, story, this scene, where Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, as he often did, and he starts telling them, at the height of his ministry, he starts explaining to them that he's got to go to Jerusalem. He has to suffer many things at the hands of all the religious leaders and be killed. And he's telling them about this. I am going to be killed and then raised again from the dead. And do you remember what Peter does? Peter pulls him aside from the crowd, from the, the group of boys, you know, the, well, and there were also women in, in their traveling crew. And, and Peter's like, Jesus, never will this happen. Like you will not be defeated in this way. And what does Jesus say? He says the same thing that he said to the devil in this temptation. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an adversary to the ways of God. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he goes on to teach the, the whole disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Then he says, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. He won the battle. Uh, no instant gratification, delayed gratification, because his eyes were set on a greater reward that required the cross. The cross comes before the crown. And we too are children of God, we're taught. So Jesus, we can think of him as our older brother who went before to pave the way for us. And as children of God, uh, Paul reflecting on this, he says, we, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So what does it mean to be a co-heir with Christ? What is it that, that Christ inherits? Everything the devil held in front of him and more. 
the devil's holding out. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. But that is actually to be ours in Christ. We are co-heirs with him. So the, 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 the thing that, that the devil held out, the thing itself was not wrong. The thing that was wrong was to not trust the father to provide it in his time and in his way, but to take a shortcut to have the things we want. And so we, as we are in relationship with Jesus and put our trust in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we also are children of God, co-heirs with Christ. And that's what our church is about, uniting people in the way of Christ, right? The way of the cross, the way of suffering, but not suffering just for its own sake, suffering for an eternal reward that we share with Christ. And so this completes round three of the three temptations. So it says there that the devil left him and then angels came and attended to Jesus. So Jesus pretty beat down. He had fasted 40 days. He had been duking it out with, with the devil. So if you think of a, a boxing match, he is, he is worn down. So much so that the son of God, the son of man, Jesus Christ, had to be attended to by angels. And in Luke's account, it says he left him, the devil left Jesus, until an opportune time. So there's more battles to come. There's more matches to come. In fact, we see Jesus later in his ministry in a garden, um, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is in conversation with the Father, and he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Like, he did not want to keep fighting this battle. I mean, the guy's 30-some years old. He's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he sees what's ahead now. It's becoming more clear to him, the picture of the cross. And he says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup from me. I want to be done with this battle. It's too hard. Not Yet not my will, but yours be done. And in that scene, angel from heaven again appears to strengthen Jesus in his flesh, in his humanity. And then the story continues. Jesus goes to the cross that we remember on Good Friday, and he breathes his last. What do you think is going through the devil's head in that moment? When the devil trying to duke it out with his so-called Messiah, and he is hanging on a cross, the most shameful of deaths, humiliating, likely naked, just on display for all to see, lifted up, hanging on a cross. What do you think the devil thought? The image that came to my mind as I was preparing and I, and I was thinking of this analogy of a boxing match was Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Lister. You know that iconic photo? It's just the, the toughest photo you can imagine. They capture it pretty well in Creed. Those guys are pretty, pretty cool looking. And he's just standing over Jesus, gloating. He thinks he's won. But it is in that very moment that his ultimate defeat has occurred. And Christ rises again. You think he's down for the count, you know? One, two. If this was WWE, you know, he'd pop up. If it's boxing, you're at count nine, and then Jesus emerges 
right? It's amazing. It's an amazing story. And it's true. Jesus' ultimate victory over the devil is predicated on the fact of the physical resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today. He is risen. Yeah. Do we believe that? These are, these are hard things to believe. We are, you, when you say he is risen indeed, you are saying, I believe that a man came and died and physically rose from the dead. We read about this victory in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the perishable is this human body, has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we back up on that very chapter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, now just listen to to him talk about the resurrection and the importance for our lives. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And there are a lot of uh, places that are Christian churches, so to speak, that don't actually believe in a physical resurrection. I don't know if that's news to some of you, um, but listen to Paul. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So he's talking about Christ was raised, so now we're looking forward to our own physical resurrection one day. He goes on, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those also who fall asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if the resurrection that we sing about, that we celebrate on Easter, if it's not true, then our lives are to be pitied more than anyone else's. Look at those people. Their whole life is staked on the claim that a man physically died and physically rose from the dead. That's impossible. That's ludicrous. That doesn't make any sense. But that's what we're saying. That's what the scriptures teaches. And it goes on. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So the first to rise from the dead, the rest to come later. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, when he returns, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's talking about the devil's dominion, authority, and power. We're not, it's not just earthly things, right? So he will have rule and reign over all kingdoms of the world. He eventually gets what's offered, but only after a life of trusting the Father, suffering the cross, physical resurrection.
So in my own faith journey, um, doubts creep in. The, the, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I've put words to believing such things as the resurrection for a very, very long time. But I've also tried to interact with people from a wide array of, of world religions, atheists, all of the above, partially because I want to understand. I want, and I also want my faith to be challenged. If it can't stand up to scrutiny, then why is it worth having it, right? So one of the people I listen to and read is uh, Sam Harris. He's uh, known as one of the four horsemen of new atheism with Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. I listen to his uh, Making Sense podcast. I don't know if this is a recommendation for you or not, um, (laughs) but the, the reality is if you're here at Mosaic Church, We are a place to meet people where they're at in their spiritual journey and help equip you to come alongside other people. So we need to to know what are people thinking. We need to allow our own faith to be challenged and sharpened. Um, I actually started reading his book, Waking Up. It's a guide to spirituality without religion. Um, Actually, in light of my word of the year, awake. So he's talking about some mindful practices and all these things but he's antagonistic to people of faith, to religion. And as I'm reading his book, I come across this quote. And I I know I've put quotes up here of things I don't agree with. And I think sometimes that's confusing to people. They're like, did you agree with that? No, what I'm showing here is how ridiculous it is that we're up here saying a man died and physically rose from the dead. He says, as manuals for contemplative understanding, the Bible and the Quran, he's also, you know, throws that in there, are worse than useless. Whatever wisdom can be found in their pages is never best found there, and it is subverted time and again by ancient savagery and superstition. So are we just gathered here celebrating superstition? I get the savagery part. Right? A lot of us have been hurt deeply by the church or by people of faith. And we can look at the body count of world religions, including Christianity. It's not good. It's also not good for the atheist community either, by the way. Humanity has fallen and broken. All have fallen short of the glory of God, Sam, Harris, and everyone. <laughs> and then, you know, I haven't read this whole book, but... Uh, this was referenced in, in the book I was reading, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. He says, our world is fast succumbing to the activities of men and women, us in here. And it's okay if you're here and you don't believe these things. We want to meet you exactly where you're at. But I think a lot of us actually believe this stuff. He says, who would stake the future of our species on beliefs that should not survive an elementary school education? Okay. All right. Well, let's think about this. Is it reasonable to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred in human history? Now, there's, I'm sure there's doubt in this room, for sure. I mean, even right now as I talk, people that come into our community, we want to create a safe space for people to come as you are. And uh, there's at least three kinds of doubt that I'm familiar with. One is intellectual doubt. That's the one where we think, hey, it just doesn't add up. It's not rational. No one could ever die, you know, rise from the dead. Well, of course, if people could typically rise from the dead, it wouldn't be a big deal, right? So, so there's a lot of intellectual doubt out there. 
There's also emotional doubt. It's often hidden behind intellectual doubt. People have been hurt by people who claim to follow Christ. Or, or they don't feel God showed up, you know, when their, their mother died of cancer. Where was God when that happened? And so you can talk all, you can line up all the intellectual arguments you want, but at the end of the day, God cannot be trusted because I have been hurt deeply. It's emotional doubt. And then there's volitional doubt where it's just like, yeah, I don't want to believe this stuff. You know, that's probably where Satan's at. He knows all the things, but he is just rebellious at the end of the day. So I wanted to make sure that we, we just bolstered our um, reason to believe in the historicity of the resurrection just a little bit this morning. Not to address fully all intellectual and not to address all emotional doubt and volitional doubt, but just to give us a little something to consider. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a creed that Paul... Um, that Paul quotes here that was in use two to three years after Christ died. And even the most skeptic of scholars, a guy named Bart Ehrman, places this creed within a year of Jesus' death. And from historical standards, that is very, very, very early. And here's what Paul says. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. So if you want to ask the question, what's the Bible all about? What is of first importance? It's not actually the ethical teachings of Jesus. Those are great, but those all come, they flow out of these central truths. And he says this, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So this, this had emerged. This is what united Christians very, very early on, right after the death of Christ. And it goes on. He was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So go and ask them. He had this claim, and he listed off the people that you can go talk to. And you're, you're going to be in a position where you have to call 500 people crazy who are all giving testimony to the same event. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, to Paul. So if there was more time, and you're welcome to come ask me, um, there are five historical facts of the resurrection that substantiate the event as historical. So if you, if you believe any history, if you look back through history and you say, hey, I believe Alexander the Great actually lived, there is as much evidence to support, I believe Jesus physically rose from the dead, as would support the evidence to believe in Alexander the Great. I won't share all five facts. You can ask me about them. I will share one with you this morning in five minutes. <laughs> Historical fact. The tomb was empty. Christ died he was placed in a tomb, and the tomb was empty. Three considerations here. So think about this. Think about these events. Think about the claims. First, the Jerusalem factor. 
Jerusalem is a town of about 25,000 people, half the size of Manhattan, Kansas. Think about the prominence of Jesus and his activities. Like the whole religious leadership, the whole town, the Roman Empire, everyone is out to get this guy in a town of 25,000 people. He, is, he dies and he is put in a tomb and no one can find the body anywhere. Think about that. I mean, I watch Iron Man 2 and they come up with a, a body dummy for, for uh, what's, John, or what's his name? Tony Stark, right? Remember that? Or you watch Jason Bourne and they come up with a body dummy to replace him. They couldn't even produce a body dummy to replace Jesus. There is no, it's so crazy. They don't even attempt to produce a fake dead body in a a town of that size when when that is in the news like crazy. So that's the first consideration, Jerusalem factor. Second, the principle of enemy attestation. So it's one thing for those who've been following Jesus up until this point to say, oh oh yeah, he rose from the dead. They're like, well, of course you're gonna say that, right? You've been following all along. But actually Jesus' own enemies said that the, the, the tomb was empty. The Jewish leaders come up with some theory that the disciples stole the body. Well, they're the ones with all the power. If they stole the body, go find them and find the body, right? So everyone, everyone in in Jerusalem, everyone, um, including the enemies, all affirmed that the tomb was empty. And then third, and this might sound a little odd, but it's actually something to consider when we think about the empty tomb. It's the testimony of women. And you might call this the criterion of embarrassment. So who was recorded to be the first to show up to the, to the empty tomb and give a report back to the men? It was the women, right? Now, how does that make the men look? They look like cowards in this story, right? And this is in a very patriarchal society. I mean, that patriarchy even shows up in that creed where um, Paul is quoting that creed, and he lists off all the men who saw Jesus alive. I mean, he doesn't even list the women in that creed. So even that patriarchy has seeped into that creed. So why would the disciples include that specific detail in the New Testament writings? Because it was true. If they're making something up, there is no way that Jewish men in that patriarchy society are going to show that women were the first to the tomb and the first to give report to these cowardly men, unless it's true. So think about that. Just think about that. So three facts to consider. Uh, The tomb was empty. And this isn't going to take you all the way. If you're, if you're steeped in intellectual doubt, emotional doubt, this is, I don't think this is going to take you all the way to solid belief, but at least know that there is solid evidence where it is reasonable to take a step of faith where you see that evidence point. And there's more, there's more digging to do. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we'll get um, ready to take the Lord's Supper. But I wanted to end reflecting on on Christ and his own faith and, and trust in God and his own hope 
that animated him to endure suffering um, to receive the ultimate reward. So in Hebrews 11, we read this is a famous passage. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And in that, that Hebrews 11, we hear person after person after person who did not receive that ultimate reward, but trusted the Father with as much as they knew had been revealed up to that point. Person after person who are looking ahead to something greater. And God had, had shown up time and time again, so they had reason to trust him. But it didn't come to fulfillment until later. And then we read of Jesus right at the end of this list of all these men and women of faith, where it says, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so we're called to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and we're to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So our thing is not to win the battle with the devil. As we talk about all these temptations, we face them. We will fail time and time again. But praise God, Jesus is our victor, and we share in his victory. So I invite those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to come up as well. And as we uh, come to the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, um, I want you to sit with just the, the reality of the resurrection and a few thoughts. Um, experience grace through Jesus' victory over evil. So if you're coming in here and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to follow Jesus through suffering? I can't do that. I failed so many times. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, is a reminder of his accomplished work on the cross. Before we read the Lord's Prayer together, um, we're going to incorporate today reading of the comfortable words. So this comes from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and Justin shared this with us. So I invite us all to stand up. And um, I'll start this for us. And then when we finish with these comfortable words, we will quote together the Lord's Prayer. God's promises of forgiveness, his never-ending promises of mercy, and his continual willingness to strengthen our faith are precious. Let's take a moment to dwell on these gospel promises, which are for our comfort and for the comfort of others. Rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can read these together. <clears throat> Love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Saving from sin. This saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And justification if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. And so after we read the Lord's Prayer, you're welcome uh, as you 
consider the claims of Christ and put your faith and hope in, in the, the death of Christ, that we welcome you to come forward. And we do have a gluten-free option. And just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup uh, as, you're, as you're led. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.